welcome to the Ordinary Youth Ministry Podcast, where we are cultivating conversations about our world that help us impart a joyful and enduring faith to your teenagers. Your hosts are me, John Mark Smith, Andrew Unger, and Ellen Vosberg. This week, we're diving into an article entitled, Tough Questions Teenagers Ask, Does God Send People to Hell for Sexual Sin? If you'd like to read it with us, you can find it on the Rooted website or in our show notes. Before we jump into the article this week, though, we want to start with our icebreaker question. And since we're talking about an article that discusses heaven, I thought it'd be fun to talk about what heaven on earth is like. In other words, your perfect day. What would you guys do if you had a free day coming up where you could do whatever you wanted? What's your perfect day, Ellen? My perfect day definitely includes, I think, the beach in sort of like a temperate climate, some sort of fruity drink, and a stack of novels. Because really what I want to do on my ideal day is just read whatever I want. Mm, so That is a good I'm, day. I, pretty simple. That's what I want. Andrew, how about you? What's your ideal day if you could do whatever you wanted? Okay. Um... So sometimes my ideal day or my ideal start happens, which is Fridays are my day off and the boys are in school. And sometimes uh, Joy and I work on the crossword together. And I really like doing that. I like reading, doing the crossword together. Um, That's adorable. And the it? Friday crossword puzzle is not easy. It's it's our like local, it's whatever our local paper is that's like free and we get it on Friday. Anyways, we work on the crossword. I like doing that. Uh then there would be like healthy amounts of both some sort of TV show that I'm watching, like a new episode or two, and then like a solid afternoon of video games. But it has to be a video game that like I play and I feel good about afterwards. Because sometimes there are video games you're like, I just spent three hours playing this and like I wasted time, but this wasn't good. Uh mm. So what's so, a good video game? Like, what's the one that's giving oh, you man. the most? Uh, so like a new Legend of Zelda game. That'll be like, so it's it's after May, Tears of the Kingdom has come out, and I'm playing that for an afternoon. Nice. And then nice. And then my boys come home and we go on a hike. This is that's my that's my perfect day. I like that both day. of you have very attainable perfect days. Real like they're not that crazy um so i don't know maybe that just makes me feel bad that like my perf my perfect day is so unattainable i'll just always be disappointed in life <laughs> um my perfect day is um not as clear as it used to be when i was young i, I knew exactly what it was um but now it, it's much vaguer there's fewer people involved than there used to be when i was younger um, but i would definitely still want well, I just mean, as I got older, I it's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, less people than I used to want. Um, but there would definitely be a desire for family time. I'd want to have time with like friends, um, doing something, activity. I've always, One thing that I've always thought would be fun on my perfect day would be um, jet skiing with a group of friends. I don't know why, but that just sounds like a lot of fun to me. Hmm. So let's, I'm going to stick with that jet That's a pretty attainable perfect day. Well, that's only one part of it. But yeah, I think that's reasonable. <laughs> Do you like yeah, to have the other part, you flying? become the king of England. Right. <laughs> How did you know? That's so that's so weird that you knew that. That's <laughs> what years of friendship does. We know. We just know you, John well, Mark. You know, in a perfect day, you'd be able to eat whatever you want, but not feel sick. Ooh. So I guess that is unattainable. Mm. You know, like I just want to be able to like eat all my favorite things and not feel gross and bad afterwards. So 
But enough about our perfect days, as fun as they are for us to talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about how sexual sin sends you to hell. <laughs> yeah, yes. it does feel very, like... <laughs> very smooth transition I set up. Title. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're... On this really smooth transition, let's talk a little bit about this article um, for this week. Tough questions teenagers ask. Does God send people to hell for sexual sin? Um, this is on the Rooted Ministry website if you're interested. And as we've mentioned, it's in our show notes as well. But uh, in short, this is an article that um, Andrew brought to our attention in which um, it starts out with a really um, interesting setup where uh, the author, Dustin Messer, says that he had a high school student who asked him a question. Do you honestly think sleeping with my girlfriend can keep me out of heaven. And that's the setup for the article. And it proceeds to be um, the author exploring kind of how he responded and why he responded the way he did. Um, So before we start talking about kind of our reactions to that, I think uh, we could summarize it as saying that what he does is he kind of pivots the conversation and wants to move away from that, that direct question and instead transition to talking about what he describes as that, that God is and scripture are concerned with what he he's describes as distracted people versus attentive people, which he builds off Luke chapter 21, 34. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. And he proceeds to build this case for the fact that what, what keeps us out of heaven is distraction, that we are so distracted and that we don't put our faith in Jesus and that um, Satan, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to distract us. And so anything can be a distraction, he says, not just debauchery or sleeping with your girlfriend, but anything that keeps you from knowing your need for Jesus. And he he even points out one example. It could even be a scheduling a haircut could be the distraction that you need. Um, And then he quotes, uh, uses a quote from C.S. Lewis's um, screw tape letters to say that um, our, it's not so much about putting things into our minds that m- their devils are trying to do, but they're trying to uh, keep things out, keep us from thinking about the important things that really matter. And so his conclusion is to say, oh, well, the things that keep you out of sin, it's not just sex, it's all this stuff. And so what we need to care about is um, all of this stuff. And we need, but the good news, and he, he ends on good news, is who is in heaven? And the answer to that is sinners. So it's not that sinners go to hell and non-sinners go to heaven, but sinners who know they need Jesus, end up in heaven. And that is how he describes the way he ultimately answered this young person's question. So I don't know. Do you guys think I did a fair job summarizing that? Anything you would add or want to correct? No, I think that's a good a good summary. Um, in some ways, like, it's a very Advent message of, you know, wake up, don't be distracted. Um I do. the The sentence that got me is, "Hell is full of slothful drunks and philanderers, but it's also full of busy team captains and math tutors." Um, and like, what a the inner math student in me is like, "Oh no, what's it?" So, yeah, it's that pivot to like, not just like I think it's a common pivot to say, "All sin keeps us from God." Like to to go to Romans three, Romans six, you know, any sin. Um, is it, is it James that if you break part of the law, you're breaking the whole law? Like, um, or is it first Peter, first Peter and James for odd reasons meld together in my brain. Um, 
that's a that's probably a thing I shouldn't have said out loud on a podcast <laughs> for everybody to hear. <laughs> um, but right, so like that's a pivot that's common. But he leans heavily on this idea of being distracted. So he's trying to really work on the fact that we live in a distracted world. We live in a world in which you are kept busy and constantly doing things. Um, and that ultimately will keep you from experiencing the kind of thing that will make you recognize your need for Jesus. Right. And I think that's one of uh, the strengths of this article is that he's not wrong about that at all, right? That um, distraction is by far one of the biggest challenges. And I, you know, distraction is not always the word I would use to describe it, but it, it's the coverall term for students that are so busy with a million different things that it's there's not even space in their time, in their hearts, in their minds to think about what matters, to engage with faith, to to meet with Jesus. And so whether you want to call that distraction or busyness or whatever, I think he's right that that in some ways um, is a bigger threat to our faith and growth in Christ than any of these quote unquote big sins. The, the example here being sleeping with your girlfriend, right? Um, if, you know, if, if students were um, sleeping with their girlfriends and paying attention to Jesus versus not sleeping with their girlfriends and not paying attention to girl to Jesus, you know, you could kind of say, okay, which one's the bigger problem, right? That paying attention to Jesus, even with sin in your life, is more ideal than um, being so distracted, but even if you're not doing incredibly immoral things, that you never pay attention to Jesus. I think he's right about that. Right. But, well, <laughs> uh, I was thinking about this, Andrew. Are we getting, we're going to get a reputation for only talking about articles that we don't agree with. I know. Uh, it's true. So, yes, I do think, at least for me, there was a few things that I was disappointed by with this article. And I, and I think the best way to summarize it is in his question, he said that uh, this young person came to him and said, do you honestly think sleeping with my girlfriend can keep me out of heaven? Which I saw that as having two components, right? There is a there's a moral question there about the behavior of sleeping with his girlfriend and whether that's appropriate or not. And then there's a question uh, about heaven and God, how God uh, gets people in and out of heaven and who's gets in, who gets out like this sort of that, that question. And, and I would say that the rest of the article then sort of fails to really do a good job answering either side of that original question, right? It, that there's, there's this, effort to make a theological answer, but that in so doing, it misses kind of either side of what the actual student might have been asking, which is about the morality of their behavior or about how um, how God was going to respond to them personally. And I, I think or that even, was a, a swing and a miss for me. Yeah. Or even deeper, I wonder if the question is ultimately about um, like what is the purpose of the Christian life? And even like, what is, what is good? Like, does God want us to have good things? Like, I think there are elements of that there too. And what the student is asking, um, and this answer misses them entirely. Right. It's a great opportunity to have that conversation about like, what is the good life? And what does that mean? You know, and for, for me, I think about it, it's framed so much around the idea of the kingdom of heaven, right? That, that what, we are invited to as followers of Jesus is to be um, part of his kingdom, 
and um, you last week we were talking about is we're sort of the vanguard, right? Because his kingdom hasn't fully come, but we're we're acting on his behalf and living like the kingdom is here. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is true both now and when Jesus comes again, like that his kingdom is what it we're living into. And so, you know, the question underneath of this, you, yeah, I think that's good to say is like, is this consistent? Is this part like living part of God's kingdom? What was this a good thing? Is that part of what that means? And that's a question that touches on not just what happens when I die, but how I live now, what are my values? What do I consider to be a good thing? At, yeah. So I think you're right, Alan. Yeah. And I think in some ways, so in some ways we would be predisposed to disagree with some of his theology because there's just kind of an approach and a language that he's using. The way he frames the question about what happens after you die, that, that none of us are on the same page. Um, right. But I think also within the question, there's the is there is, is sleeping with my girlfriend really bad enough to earn hell? That's the question I think he's trying to answer is like, d- does this reach the level of, of hell? Because the common understanding is, well, hell's where bad people go. And this doesn't feel like it puts me in the bad category. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend recently who really balked at being called a sinner. Um, and, and this is someone who didn't grow up in an evangelical context. And so I think a very basic sin salvation gospel is not not in his not in his sort of lexicon that that's not a framework he uses so when he hears sinner he thinks well no like i'm a kind person like i don't like being put in that category and christians we frequently have to do the work to say okay what does it mean to sin what does it mean you know all that kind of stuff but yeah like like you john mark i think there's a different kind of question that's a a better question or a question i would want to answer because i think I also want to push back against this person's framework, but in a different way, because I think there's a really good article from the Bible project about heaven and earth and talking about heaven in terms of heaven and earth is the, the sort of pair that the Bible talks about. It doesn't frequently talk about heaven and hell next to each other. And it sort of lays out the biblical story about reuniting heaven and earth and that right. And heaven breaking in through, through Christ and the, the kingdom being inaugurated. And so rather than encouraging our students to think in terms of like, okay, what do I do to to end up in the right place after I die? To say, okay, what does it look like to live into the kingdom that is coming right now? And I think it's missing the opportunity to to invite them to not just like accept Jesus now, but to like start start living into the kingdom that is coming, right. which is the thing that we need to right. wake up to, not wake up to say the sinner's prayer. Isn't right. that, I don't know if it's Lewis or somebody else, but I remember that conversation about, you know, if you don't want God's kingdom now, why do you think you would want it magically after you die? Right? Like it's God's that values, like his, his, his goodness, what, what is good to him and, f- and what he is trying to do for us are the same. It's not some different thing that will happen right. once we die. It's the same thing. We, God's goodness is God's goodness now, and it will be later. So at some level, you know, if you think about it as heaven on earth, like you're saying, Andrew, then you could say, well, yeah, sleeping with my girlfriend is not participating in heaven on earth because it's not part of God's goodness for you. But that's a different framework than does it keep me out of hell? Right. Well, and and this, this framework that this article represents, it it ultimately betrays a kind of 
disembodied intellectual ascent um, sort of framework for understanding the Christian life. Whereas really, like like you're making that point about like why why would we want it in the future if we don't want it now? Um, and it's probably true that we don't want it now. But part of going ahead and living the way that God wants us to live makes us want His kingdom. Like mm. yeah, we may think it's it's kind of weird, like we don't understand all the time why He wants us to live certain ways or make certain choices or say certain things, but. Ultimately, when we go ahead and live into those habits, when we practice them, even if we don't feel them or think them, they form us um, into mm-hmm. people who want the kingdom. And I think even like part of the question is, is this thing so bad? And and OK, like John Mark, you said, that's not what God has in God's goodness for you. Um, and I think part of the questions about sex that we get from high schoolers or even sort of early adults and or anybody really um but sort of point to like it this doesn't seem like a bad thing um mm-hmm. and we're this isn't our sex episode that's another time but <laughs> to give you a preview a little uh, teaser <laughs> a little teaser um i i think it it's helpful to recognize um like they're noticing something good. That they're they're noticing that that this this seems like a good thing. It seems like a loving thing. Let's let's assume this person and their girlfriend have a great loving relationship. They care for each other, and they are having sex. And you think, okay, we don't think that's what God's intent is because we think there's a unitive component to sex that that corresponds with marriage and these things go together. But like, I don't want to lie to teenagers and be like it's going to be horrible and you will be racked with guilt for the rest of your life because just enough people aren't racked with guilt for the rest of their life that I don't want to, I don't want to lie and give them a wrong framework, which I think is also part of the question. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me the kingdom of heaven is about not sleep or at least part of it would be not sleeping with my girlfriend before we are married. But why? Right. Because it, it, it seems good. And um, it is one of those things that you almost have to, cause you know, there's good arguments and explanations for why, but they're not complete. They're not all convincing. Mm-hmm. And so it does have to become one of those things you say, if you're, if that's the leading question, then it's never, there's no real good compelling answer. It's let's back up and talk about God and how we understand God. Let's talk about his goodness and what he wants for us and his the desire for flourishing and shalom and in his kingdom to reign and what that means about justice. And, and this is the world we're a part of. And he's inviting us to live into it even though we don't always see it or understand it. And you have this bigger conversation and say, and there are times where he asks us to do things that, yeah, it doesn't totally make sense to me. Like in the sense that I can't see a direct one-to-one, I did this and here's the good thing I got because of it. Sometimes it's, I did this thing because God has told me that this is good for me and I trust him. That's not a very satisfying answer. (laughs) Yeah. So... It's true, like that's a true thing about Christian theology and morality, but it's not a satisfying answer. And I think we have to acknowledge that up front and be like, yeah, it's, there's not an answer that makes it suddenly feel like, oh yeah, I no longer want to have sex because this thing just totally changed the way I, you know, see it. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So I can imagine our listeners at this point are wondering (laughs) why we're getting so deep into the specifics of this question, this article. Because on one level, I think it can seem like we're being nitpicky um, 
or that like yeah how how does this really especially since in, in some sense we end up in the same place as him right we agreed with his conclusion um but like why does it matter why what yeah, what does this exactly. have to say for our larger practices of youth ministry right yes excellent because really what we wanted to talk more about today is, is simply the fact that the way we um, understand our theology, the way we construe it, the way we kind of formulate it will by necessity impact the way we do our ministry. And, um, and so it's important to think about these things as nitpicky as they can seem. They also will shape when our students come to us and ask questions like this one, whether it's about sex or um, any of a million different topics, are we, are we going to be answering the question they're asking or are we going to be using their question as a launch board for our, you know, predetermined theological like mantras and perspectives? Mm. So I have a friend who jokes that like <laughs> he's a priest and he says like, I've only really got like five sermons. Like total. So like every time I go back, like I'm always ending up preaching one of those five sermons. Um, so I think in, in some sense, we are always going to return back to the things we care a lot about. But you're right. It is, there is a level of theological education you typically get before you start in youth ministry. Um, and that is a sufficient amount of theology to be able to, to, to teach the basics of Christian faith. Um, but, I have certainly found that like, as I've grown older, part of becoming a better youth pastor in my thirties than I was in my twenties is having better categories, having fuller mm -hmm. categories, being able to answer questions more fully. Um, right. I feel like I'm just constantly doing youth ministry out of whatever the most recent good book I read. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is great. I can't wait to yeah. <laughs> shoehorn this into all my lessons now. Well, I give you a, a personal example from my ministry um, that, so I grew up, and I, I give you a little context to understand it. I grew up in a, a very rigorous Bible-believing kind of community where you were memorizing scripture at school, at church, you know, reading it all the time, like just, you know, as passionate as you could be about the importance of scripture. And with that, which was very good, and, and it formed me in some very good ways, but there was also some negative sides to it, like some, some guilt and shame that could sneak in about like, reading your Bible and good Christians read their Bible. If you're not reading your Bible enough, you're not a good Christian as well as some simplistic views where it's like, well, just read your Bible. That'll fix your problems. Right? So when I got into ministry and I had the authority of being the youth pastor, I was like, well, what I don't want to do is shame my students into reading scripture. Like I was just like, I don't want them to feel shame about scripture. I want them to feel invited into it. The problem was categorically, I did not have a good category to talk about scripture anymore because I felt like what I grew up with while having benefited me in many ways was insufficient to be for me to want to replicate it. And I didn't have, and I was also not willing to go to like, you know, some extreme liberal position where the Bible's not that important. It's just a nice story for us. Right. So I was still theologically committed, but I had, didn't have categories. And it wasn't until I've been doing ministry for a number of years where Finally, like the pieces fell into place. And I was able to say, oh, this is how I can talk about reading scripture where I'm unapologetic about its importance, but without 
carrying over the guilt and shame. And it was, it was a categorical thing. It wasn't, so, you know, if you could talk about it, it's like it, in reference to this article, it wasn't the ultimate conclusion that was different because we agreed about, I, you know, it always agreed about that, but it was knowing how to frame it in a way that was actually hitting what I was trying to do well. And so there was a framing and a category issue that really made a difference. And um, I think that, so there, there is an importance of how we talk about our theology that impacts then how we do our ministry. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, again, our listeners might say, like, why does it matter that much if you're going to have the same category? And it's because I think sometimes everything we teach, um, we're not going to teach our students about every individual topic, but sometimes they'll extrapolate on other topics based on what they've learned, right? So, like, for me in this article, when he says that, like, Satan would be just as happy to see you mindlessly clocking in at work as being in the party scene. Part of that is a sort of, you know, all sin puts us, put, puts us, estranges us from God. And, and that's true. Um, but imagine, uh, imagine a teenager then like didn't read their devotions because they were too busy doing homework. And they think this is just as bad as if I was doing drugs and having promiscuous sex. Like, I think there are offshoots from this article that I, I actually don't think are the, the writer would actually say, right? Like, I don't think he would say, yes, like murder and shoplifting are moral equivalents. Um, in a theological sense, do both, are, are both sin and thus in need of redemption. Like, sure, but but nobody, nobody sane is going to say it doesn't, there's no difference in my students' lives if they're murderers or if they're shoplifters. Um but you could read this and and end up as a student hearing this, hearing like, okay, yeah, like I do need to not be distracted. But then either having th- this strange um, dissonance when you're in the in, in another situation where you're trying to understand your sin, and either you feel right. totally guilty about minor sins in a way that's unhelpful, or not feeling guilty at all about major sins because you're like, well, I murdered a guy, but like it's just that is shoplifting, like. I don't yeah. know. The, the youth pastor is also busy sometimes, so we're we're all the same, right? If I can to to deepen this a little bit, the f- the framework that piece is is I would say what's there, right? It's not the theological point, but it's the framework. And for me, the distinction is between what I would call a fear based framework and what I've come to call the invitational framework, mm. right? That. What I didn't do was change how important I believe the Bible was. But what I was trying to do is figure out how do I reject like fear-based Bible thumping? And what I was working towards and had to find was the invitational framework where I'm saying, there is something good here you're invited into. And so I think that is at the core, maybe what really I'd say the most about this is there's a lot of emphasis in a way that on fear-based thinking of like what keeps you out of heaven what's sin this all this other stuff is sin too instead of saying hey there's good news where's the good news here the good news is hey even if you're sleeping with your girlfriend god is offering you and inviting you into something good and even if it means giving up sleeping with your girlfriend it's still better like that invitational goodness is the framework shift that i think that you know as we talk about imparting life uh, and joyful you know youth ministry um to our teens like that's the shift is it even if it's the same theological point even if it's the same moral behavior 
are we framing it around fear of God and his judgment or what will get us out of hell or into hell or whatever? Or is it, hey, repent because there's good news here. Like there's something so much better available to you. And that's not downplaying like the, the reality of judgment or anything like that. But it's a framework question. Like, are we inviting people into something, or are we trying to scare them? And um, unless the, unless we have a prophetic call, like some of the the prophets did, where God told, like, was giving specific warnings, most of us are probably not doing that. Most of us are are much better served by representing Jesus by, as the one that is inviting. He came to seek this and save the lost. You know. Mm-hmm. I do think a minor conclusion of this uh, discussion is that content does matter, Andrew. <laughs> nope, it's all form. <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> it is also content because we we do disagree with the content of this writer's theology, um, and and the way and and that content does shape it shapes the framework, um, and it does shape how we then end up ministering to the student in question. So I. I do think <laughs> this is a, a tick mark. In Listener, my- if you happen to be finding our podcast for the first time today, you've never listened to it before. First of all, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Yeah. And second of all, welcome to Andrew and Alan's perennial, um, somewhat serious, mostly joking. I'm not even sure. <laughs> argument. I think it's pretty serious. <laughs> I think it's, we do it it's, in a joking tone. We joke because good Christians don't yell at each other on podcasts. Right. Um, Conflict they makes do that Andrew anxious. It does. <laughs> yeah, we yell at each other on our Patreon. And, and That's right. for those of you who are for Enneagram fans, we have an eight talking to a nine, so that that explains the dynamics too. So, so here's, so yes, the, we disagree with the content. Um, and frankly, I think anybody who spends time with me and hears me share my opinions very freely about all kinds of things know that I knows that I care about content as well. Um, here's the thing that I wonder. I love what you're saying, John Mark, and that's where I feel myself going as well. Where, and you said like unless you're you're a prophet, I mean, the, all the New Testament books do have some level of that prophetic voice. Um, of of harshness um, that's in there. And I do wonder, I mean, this guy isn't necessarily even being harsh in his tone. Um, but However, I, he I do is wonder... drawing on prophetic scripture, like yes. in the context, like Jesus you're, you're right, prophesying you're right. about the coming of the Son of Man. So like, wh- where does where does harshness or, I mean, maybe it's fear. Maybe there's a sense of, of I mean, the, the Tower of Siloam falls on people and Jesus says, repent so the same doesn't happen to you. Um, John the Baptist's message is, is, is repent, you brood of vipers. Um, so not every New Testament, and certainly not Old Testament witness, is towards a like, hey, there's a good thing here for you. Some of it is, you are doing a definitively bad thing. Um, right. I think that's true. But look at who that happens to. It's people who are callous in their hearts, people mm-hmm. who are not seeking out the Lord. So a student who comes to you or me as a youth pastor <laughs> to ask a question is not that student. Nobody coming to the youth pastor to ask a question is callous. I mean, unless you just have some kid who is just 
I mean, I'm not even sure I believe this is, even to them, there'd be some, op- if they're engaging you, there's an openness at some level. But, you know, it's, this kid coming with an honest question is never the kid that needs judgment. The, that's my yeah. opinion. And I, I think that scripture, actually, that's a pretty clear, easy case to make, is that the the harsh words are reserved for people who are oppressive to others, unrepentant, unwilling to listen to God. And that for those who are genuinely seeking, it is always, yeah, come, come, come. There's good news for you. So maybe that's just uh, a point. I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I would defer to a biblical scholar. But in my reading and study of scripture, that seems like one of the pretty clear um, overarching realities of the story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that sounds accurate. Um, when you talked about like the, the person who doesn't, who's, who's callous and repentant, um, have you guys, do you guys remember that? It was like a viral video of some guy talking about being a youth pastor and like this kid who was just messing around. He wasn't taking the Lord seriously. And he talks about one time just like punching the kid right in the chest and oh my gosh, down. yeah. <laughs> and then what? he's like, I led that kid to the Lord that day. Um, that's yep. going to go on our show notes too. Cause it's violence for the kingdom of heaven. Violence for the kingdom. It, yeah. It was a, it was a pastor who was telling a sermon about like a decade ago when he'd been a youth pastor. Right. And how he punched this kid for acting poorly. So, because he was just, he needed, he needed a punch, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know yeah. how to describe it. Like, like to not, I think you're, you, that is a probably line in the sand kind of thing. You either get why that's problematic or you don't. I don't know how to help yeah. you across <laughs> is, that Is it line. the framework or the content? <laughs> Look, in that sense, his content was fine. The kid needed to take Jesus seriously. It was his method. <laughs> it was form, not content. The medium is the message. And the the medium of a punch to the chest is not the message we want to be sending. Yeah, I have a feeling that kid's probably not a Christian anymore. <laughs> you don't know that. I don't. Looks like someone someone it's doesn't believe in persevering to the saints. Mm. Wow, I'm not well, a Baptist anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I so as we as we think about this, then like, what's the encouragement we can give to you know others who might be listening about? How you know it's like I mean obviously to say, well your theology matters on one level is like I don't know if anyone's going to be like oh I disagree that's so weird that you think my theology matters so but what's our kind of encouragement um, and and maybe takeaway that we can give to people to say hey here's here's a resource or a tool or a question to think about or or just whatever what what's the what's the joyful impartation we can leave people with hmm. well I think I mean apart from the fact that. I do like the message of like being distracted is bad. The, the cares of this world can in fact distract you from the kingdom. Um, I mean, that that's certainly true. Um, but maybe the, the, the takeaway is like asking a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Like I think sometimes even like, why would you, maybe the first step should have been, well, that's an, that's an interesting way to put it. Why do you think, why does that seem unbelievable to you? Why does that seem... Why does that seem odd? What is it about God or about humans or about sex that you think you think that that framework's wrong? Like I think probing actually is what helps us give better theological answers because it means that we're better responding and we're better understanding the person in front of us and what kind of question they're asking. Because we we've already talked about the several different ways we could take that question. 
Um, right. So, maybe so you're really reminding us, thing. Andrew, that as pastors, while there is a time and place where we do have to teach and correct theologically, as we're interacting with people, maybe that's not our first like default. Oh, yeah. let me just jump into a deep theological conversation. Like, remember that this is a person. Be curious. Engage them. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Ellen, what do you got for us? Well, I think it like, yeah, this is sort of a continuation of what Andrew was saying. But I I think in, in youth ministry specifically, like we need to be to be probing for for those larger questions of belonging and identity and purpose. Like that's what's really behind these kinds of questions, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, especially uh, like the kinds of questions that teenagers tend to ask about some of the like more behavior management principles <laughs> of like church life. Like that, like this question in particular feels like it's picked up from like, well, I was just told not to do this in church. So um but but I really think that that what goes on behind those are those those bigger questions of identity, purpose, and belonging. Um, and so being being willing to, yeah, not just engage with our students on the surface of their questions, but figure out what's really going on. It it takes a lot more time though. <laughs> so, sure. and I will I would like to caveat your statement. I I, I do think that there are people who assume our theology doesn't matter. Or that it's secondary to 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 youth ministry, because um, I think that's why sometimes people go into youth ministry with their youth ministry degree rather than with their theology degree, um, and that's where we end up. With, wow, I'm not pointing at you, Andrew. Like that, huh? <laughs> and I think that's why we end up sometimes with um, like broken discipleship. Um, not that I think like good theology or or even knowing a lot about theology fixes all of our ministry problems. That's definitely not true either. But, um, the fact that like, I think we often assume that anybody can come in and do ministry to our youth and children, that what really matters is that you like love these students rather than that you also are, um, right like knowledgeable about the faith that you're imparting. Um, like that's also really important. We yes. cannot neglect um, our theology just because I think you're we feel at, like that's, ch- kids don't care about that. Yeah, that's a really good clarification because I do agree with you. And I think my comment was more thinking about like in this context where this guy's, you know, diving into a theological response, mm-hmm. you know, in that kind of in that context. Like, yeah, people, yeah, if you care about theology, that's good. Um, I think my takeaway that I encourage is it would be directed to those of us who are doing ministry is to, um, practice and be intentional about our humility around our theology Hmm. and that's a word that challenges me and and challenges us as well this is not because it's not just oh all those people out there you need to do this like i need to do this thing where i'm saying okay let me let me just really pay attention to what i'm believing and how is that showing up and um and what i would say then would be to invite other people in and give them permission to speak into that and say hey i noticed this which is hard to do because, you know, especially if you're in a smaller church and you either don't have volunteers or only a couple of volunteers, maybe they're not really theologically trained. So it might be harder for them to do. But as we're able to, to invite and allow people to speak into and say, hey, I noticed the, this and, and, and give them permission to challenge our assumptions. I think that's a really important part for all of us, not because we're always going to be wrong. Matter of fact, even if we were always right, I think it'd still be good. 
because then that process we have to say, oh, let me be more thoughtful about what I'm doing and why. And so as those of us who are in ministry roles, especially, whether vocational or as volunteers, to, to practice the humility of letting others kind of speak into that. Um, and the, for, for some of us, it's hard. I'm going to say for me, it's hard. Doing it as long as I've done it, you know, there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, you've been doing this for six months. Well, you know, um, I'm not going to name names, but I've been to youth ministry gatherings where I'm like, you you could have been a youth in my youth group. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't need to hear from you. And that's that's not good. So like the humility to let other people speak and say, hey, maybe you have assumptions here that you aren't noticing, you know. And I think that's a, a good takeaway from this conversation is that we all, every one of us needs people who can say, hey. Why did you do that? <laughs> mm. For sure. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I hope that uh, this has been a helpful conversation for you guys as we continue just to explore together um, questions about youth ministry and, and do that together. So thank you for joining us today on the Youth Ministry Podcast, Ordinary Youth Ministry Podcast. You can find our podcast online at ordinaryyouthministry.com and at OrdinaryCast. You can also contact us directly with any questions, comments, or ideas at OrdinaryYouthMinistry at gmail.com. We hope this conversation will help you impart a joyful and enduring faith to your teenagers. See you next time.